They're older than the pyramids, and the standing stones and stone circles that guard the landscape of Britain remain an unsolved mystery. How did these people with the Stone Age culture, what engineering methods did they have, A, to get the stones there, B, to get them erected, and then, of course, why? Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, an expert in prehistoric England tells us how to take a closer look at the Sistine Chapel of the Stone Age. To view traditions that modern-day Scandinavia is built on, Stockholm offers one of Europe's best open-air folk museums. It is like a miniature Sweden. Original buildings from all over the country that have been moved log by log. So it's not pretend, it's real buildings from seven centuries. But the favorite part of any building in Finland is the sauna. There is an expression in Finland, first build the sauna, then build the house. Explore ancient England, modern Stockholm, and the saunas of Finland. It's coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. It's one of the most charming and inviting capital cities in Europe. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today's Stockholm integrates its many islands and forested lands by design into a clean and efficient cityscape where you don't have to leave town to catch the fish you'll have for dinner. We'll get a guided walk around one of Northern Europe's most people-friendly cities in just a bit on Travel with Rick Steves. But if you like a good mystery, I recommend you explore the English countryside. Walk around an ancient stone circle all alone in a field, or get up close to a collection of massive standing stones that were erected in prehistoric times, and you'll know there's still a lot more to learn about the ground you're walking on and the people who came long before us. Joining us right now to uncover the prehistoric layers of Britain is Mark Seymour. He comes from southern England, lives across the channel in Brittany now, and specializes in guiding visitors to the megaliths and ancient stones of Britain. Mark, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Okay, Mark, when you go to England and you want to see prehistoric stones, first give us a little bit of context. What was going on so long ago? How long ago was it? And and who were these people? They probably emanated from the, the Middle East um, some 10, 12,000 years ago. Finally, the culture of those people wound up in, in, in the British Isles perhaps between four and 7,000 years ago. They then started to instill on the landscape these wonderful megalithic structures which can be found all over the British Isles and Western Europe, particularly in, in southern Britain um, and western Britain. Uh, so on the continent, you've got Brittany in the west of France, and in Britain, you could lace together a whole trip just going from ancient site to ancient site, remembering that most of them date from before the oldest pyramid 5,000 years ago. The uh, crowning site, of course, is Stonehenge, but there are stone circles all over Britain. Tell us about stone circles in general. Stone circles will be found predominantly in Britain and not in other parts of Europe. Uh, there are many, many hundreds of them in Britain. There are small ones, there are the large ones, such as um, uh, Stonehenge, Avebury, uh, which many people may be familiar with. It's actually the largest stone circle in Europe, some 400 meters across. Avebury. Um, Avebury. So Stonehenge is more famous, but a great thing about Avebury is you can actually get into it. You can walk around in it. You can touch the stones. There's a little village that grew up in its midst. It's so big. There is a village and a church in the middle of this village. And then, okay, you'd be all excited about this stone circle you're exploring in Avebury, A-V-E-B-U-R-Y. And then if you had an ability to, let's say, go up above the ground in a hot air balloon and look down, what would you see? What, what's near Avebury? Well, uh, Avebury itself is just a small part of the landscape of the megalithic culture in, in, in that part of Britain, um, emanating in, we feel, four directions coming out of the uh, circle of Avebury are four walkways or causeways of stone. Like big One of the grand processionways. Procession, so the circle stones. at Avebury might be the Holy of Holies, and yes. then people would be coming in from four different directions. Yes, yes. They all have names. One of them is called the Avenue, and uh, it's, it's spectacular. It actually, uh, you can walk down through the Avenue across farmers' fields, courtesy of the English <laughs> right to Rome. And, well, that's right. Uh, in England, you can, if you're a farmer <laughs> and you happen to have a famous stone on your field, people have access you're to it. You're in trouble, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm um, Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking prehistoric stones with Mark Seymour. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And on the phone is Barbara in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Barbara, thanks for your call. Thank you. Do you have a question or a comment for Mark about the prehistoric stones of England? Well, I'd just like to relay an experience that we had that I think maybe your listeners would, would appreciate and would enhance their visit to Stonehenge. I was there three years ago with my granddaughter, who was 11 at the time. We stayed in Salisbury, and I had researched online different ways to, to go to Stonehenge, how you could get there, et cetera, et cetera, and found that through the, I think it's the Heritage Trust, you can book a 
pre-opening visit or a post-closing visit to Stonehenge. And you pay a little bit of money for that, but what it allows you is you are then allowed inside where the stones are. It's not roped off. You can walk around. You can you can visit them. You can experience the whole thing. It's really very special. We had probably, they don't take more than 20 people in a group. We booked it several months in advance. And the morning we got there, it was very misty as we walked under the road to go up to where Stonehenge was, and you could you could barely see the stones, and it really made you feel like you were experiencing history in a very special way. Barbara, that is spectacular because 99% of the people who see Stonehenge, they see it with tour groups and bullhorns and barbed wire, and you can't get in there, and you just look at it from a distance and so on. Uh, Mark, you know, almost all my memory, it's been the big freeway or highway has gone right by Stonehenge, but now they've actually finished the new renovation. And how is Stonehenge different now from a visitor's point of view? Now there's a large parking area. It's set back a little bit from the circle itself. Um, you actually have to walk under a, a minor road. There's a subway provided for that so that you can get up to a vantage point to actually overlook the stone and circle itself. Actually, uh, you, you hit on uh, some wonderful points there about booking ahead for that. Can you, uh, have you heard about that? This yep. before, So you get up yep. earlier, go late. What a beautiful thing, Barbara, for people who are a little more motivated and pay a few extra bucks, and I would think you'd have triple the experience. Mm-hmm. Well, you do, and you, you don't have a tour guide, but the guards that are standing around to make sure you don't damage the stones are a wealth of knowledge, and they were, if you talk to them, they give you all sorts of information. Yes, yes, yes. That's good advice. Uh, when there are guards, especially in Britain where they're, they'll speak English, it's just to assume they know what's going on and they're bored and they'd love to talk to you. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm glad you had the foresight to uh, look into that and book ahead. Um, it's one of those things I know from experience that you, you really should book at least a year ahead because you're not going to guarantee yourself a position. To get that earlier late. You can go to Stonehenge like the masses anytime you want. Absolutely. Just, just park your car and go in. And it's, it's, it's a great site. Hey, Barbara, did you go to any other stone circles on your trip? No, we did not. We were just going to be in England for two or three days. You saw the granddaddy of them. Thanks for your call. Thank you. I'm Rick Steves. We're talking prehistory with Mark Seymour. Mark, we were talking about Stonehenge and these huge stones. How much does one of these stones weigh and where did it come from? That will vary, um, depending on the stone circle and the geology of the area. But good averages between 40 and 80 tons. So let's say a small stone, 40 tons. 40 tons. And uh, it came, I, I know Stonehenge is famous for having stones that came from as far away as Wales or something, maybe 100 miles away or something that's like right, this. That's right, that's right. Now, a lot of people just assume it was ley lines that elevate the stones and then you just give it a little push and it glides <laughs> all the way there and then they settle it into its spot. Uh, first of all, what are these ley lines? Well, I, I'm sure Neolithic man would have loved to have been able to do that. But uh, the ley lines themselves are, is something that a chap called um, Thomas Watkins in the 1920s looked into. He was actually in one of these lovely megalithic uh, landscapes and he looked around him and he thought, ooh, Point A over there seems to connect with point B over there. So he was looking at one stone on the top of the hill and realized that it was in alignment with two or three of the local uh, uh, hills. So a big grid of magical places that help each other out and connect. That's right, yeah. He then started, he looked at the maps and he started to draw points uh, between churches, uh, which would have been pagan sites perhaps, yeah. uh, stone circles, standing stones. Because Glastonbury is supposed to be at the intersection of two ley lines, right? Uh, it's personally... I, yeah, I, <laughs> I'm not saying do you believe I'm it. I'm saying I'm people skeptic. who embrace this stuff, they say a ley line is pretty special and when you have two of them crossing, look out. Look out, I And know, there's a I lot know. of uh, people who love that kind of stuff that go to Glastonbury just to be a druid and boogie. There are people that believe in ley lines. They really yeah. are. They think there's a mysticism there. They think that uh, these ancient peoples, they had a way of traveling from point A to point B to point C very efficiently, very quickly okay, I gotta, using these ley lines. I'm sitting there at, at Stonehenge every one of these stone circles and you see a 40-ton rock, and you do your little geological study, and you realize this rock came from Wales, 100 Mm -hmm. miles away or something. Mm -hmm. So you think, what technology did they have back then? Well, they had about what they had in Egypt. They had a bunch of slaves, and they had ropes, and they had logs to roll under those things. And you can roll and and bring the log around and roll some more. You can put it on a raft, I suppose, and take it up a river. That's exactly what happened. And actually, very, very interestingly, in recent years, they have actually discovered in the Severn Estuary. The Severn Estuary is a a wide body of water that runs between South Wales and uh, Western England. And a Wiltshire is set inland a little bit from that large body of water in England. Uh, that's where you'll find stone circles like Avery and in particular Stonehenge. Ah, so they are, you can look at it as a, as a practical matter where you could bring these stones in with the existing technology.
technology. That's right. And they yeah. did use rafts. And we uh, know they used rafts because we have found those blue sarsen stones in the bottom of the Seven Estuary. Oh, so it fell off the boat. Some of those boats found were it. crushed and sunk, yes. Oh, nuts. Because yes. I really want to believe in the ley line. <laughs> because if you have a good ley line, all you got to do is prop it up and give it a kick, and it's on its way. But Just it wind work. it up like a good <laughs> elastic band. Oh, okay, well, whether they use the boats and the ropes or the magical ley lines, you got all these stones in place. I mean, this is a, a monumental task for yes, these people yes. 8,000 years ago or something like this. Why did they build it? You got a huge stone circuit, you got a thousand of them in England. What was the practical purpose of these things as far as we know? As far as we know, let's, uh, we have to look on it from uh, the point of view of the 20th century, the 21st century, and of course the 19th century. This is when archaeology started to develop. The people that developed archaeology as a science were generally religious people, and they looked at everything with a religious viewpoint. So they underwrite almost everything, archaeologically speaking, with regards to the, the Neolithic period, with a bit of a religious bias. Um, that's beginning to be eroded nowadays. It's well, science how, how is coming into play. How could you look at, at the meaning of Stonehenge with a religious bias? I mean, it was basically a celestial calendar, wasn't it, for people who wanted excuses to know when to plant and when to harvest? Yeah, that's connected to uh, Druidism in right. many ways. Okay. And uh, the Druids weren't the people that put the stones there. The Druids came along 4,000, 3,000 mm. years after the stones were built. But they were built originally, and, and it's no coincidence that in Castlerigg, up in Keswick, in, oh, Lakes, yes. in the Cumbrian yes. Lakes District, Castlerigg Stone Circle, it's a circle on a bluff surrounded by this vast amphitheater of peaks and the stones line up with the highest peaks and uh, everything kind of uh, matches when it's solstice and mm. the sun sets mm. here and it all works. It's, it's beautiful, isn't it? And it's what a staggering spot. I mean, it's gorgeous oh. up there, particularly so at sunset. You've got to credit these people for knowing what they were doing. Yes, yes. Now, Mark, you have, obviously you have a passion for this and an interest in it. How do you feel when you go to one of these places? Why are you so interested in it? I'm interested because um, I, I am dumbfounded. When I'm standing next to a stone, there's a beautiful one uh, in France that, that's 21 meters long. It's about 140 tons in weight. It's one of, one of nine that we know were probably there at one point in time. It's broken. How did these people with the Stone Age culture, what engineering methods did they have, A, to get the stones there, B, to get them erected, and then, of course, why? And with all the best will in the world, archaeologists to this day have no idea why these things were put there or why these people did it. And it will awe you. It will <laughs> awe you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We are being awestruck by the wonders of prehistoric can you call it civilization? Yes, I think you can. Prehistoric civilization. Mark Seymour, thank you very much. Thank you. Next, we visit what might be one of the greenest cities in the world. Stockholm devotes more of its area to clean waterways, woods, and green space than it does to buildings. That's why most Stockholmers walk, bike, or take public transit to work. A guide from Stockholm takes us around our city in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steve. We're at 877-333-RICK. Email is radio at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. To explore a refreshing mix of old and new and to get inspired by a city that takes nature seriously, I recommend you plan to spend some time in Stockholm. And while Sweden is especially nice in the summertime, there's really plenty to take in in Stockholm any time of year. 
Joining us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to share the high points of her hometown is tour guide Osa Danielson. Osa, thank you for being with us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, you just bicycle to work in Stockholm and, and show groups around and tourists around your, your great city, the capital of Sweden. Yes, I do. If you were to say which is the grandest city of Scandinavia, the dominant city of Scandinavia, what would you say and why? Well, of course, I have to say Stockholm. You're, you're biased. Okay, what's I, so great uh, about Stockholm? Well, I do love Oslo and Copenhagen, but Stockholm is so beautiful. It's really beautiful. It has uh, one-third of the size is water, and another third of the size is green areas. So it's a, a very, very beautiful city. It is a beautiful mix of water and green and architecture. Yes, exactly. And Stockholm has an interesting design because it, it's kind of where the lake hits the sea, isn't it? How does that work? Exactly. One of the biggest lakes in Sweden, uh, it flows into the Baltic Sea. So these two waters, they meet in Stockholm. And now historically, there, there's a reason people would come together here because of trade, right? Yes, exactly. The first capital of Sweden was on the lake. On the lake. Exactly, on the Lake Maladen, uh-huh. uh, further into the lake. There were uh, all these trade going on and people were coming in so you'd and have, leaving uh, by boat. lumber and, and animal skins and food and whatever coming from the inland along the lake. Exactly. And, and then they got to get down to the sea so they could trade away. Exactly. All right. Now, last time I was in Stockholm, I was so impressed by this Lake Mellorin mm-hmm. because it seems to be a park where people go just to have a good time. Describe the, the beautiful restaurants and coffee shops and cocktail bars and so on along the lake in the early evening. Yes, it's a favorite. Along the, the waterline in Stockholm, there are plenty of places where you can uh, just sit and uh, watch the sun dawn and, and just sit right next to the water or sometimes in the water on these floating restaurants and bars. And this is freshwater. Uh, this I mean, is freshwater. I think most of the tourists are looking at the saltwater harbor front of Stockholm, but the inland, on the lake, that seems to be sort of a place for the Stockholmers. Exactly, exactly. That's where we, where we meet, especially during summer. Now, and when you meet with your friends in one of these bars, mm-hmm. everybody's having, um, what, what's the popular drink? I can see the sun oh, glinting through it. It's sort of a rosé. A rosé, yes. It's that's rose, the trendy drink in Stockholm at the moment, yes. It's like all these sparkling rosé glasses there yes. with the sun setting yes. and these beautiful Swedish people having a great time <laughs> after a long day of work. Exactly. And there are little blankets if it gets a little bit chilly so you can wrap them around you and it's it's just a fantastic way to spend spend your time, so your you're evening. Out, you're outdoors even if it's cold. Always. We love being outdoors. Swedes are obsessed by being outdoors all the year round, but especially in, during summertime. When and when you, you, when you do get summer, then everybody's out oh sunbathing. Yes. Oh, yes. It's a sin to be indoors if, it, if it's good weather. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Osa Danielsson about Stockholm, the capital of Sweden. Osa, let's take a walk through Stockholm, because i got to say, I'm Norwegian, and I love Oslo, and I love Copenhagen, too. But if I had to live somewhere in Scandinavia, I think I'd live in Stockholm. It's just such a grand city. It's such a people-friendly city. It's got that wonderful mix. And I like the history. Let's start in the old town. Mm. What's the Swedish word for old town? Gamla stan. On an island, and right at the top of the island is the old square. Yes. Literally. Stortorget, yes. That, that's the literal word, old square, Stortorget. Stortorget. No, big square, it's actually. Oh, bi- store is big. Yes. Okay, so it's the big square exactly. in the old town. The one and only, the first one. The... Stortorget, exactly. big square in the Gamla Stan, old town. Exactly. I'm there learning got it. Swedish. Yes. Okay. <laughs> now, we're, now we're standing on Stortorget, mm-hmm. and you look around, mm-hmm. and you see many things that remind you of what Swedish history and culture is all about. What would you see? Yes, you would see these beautiful facades painted in different colors, the old town, it's where the history of Stockholm started. It's because you had a, a massacre right there in that square. Yes, that was a little bit later. It started, mm-hmm. the history of Stockholm starts in the 1200s. Okay. And then the massacre, the bloodbath of Stockholm was in the 1500s. Oh, so that was relatively modern times, I guess. Yeah, I, in exactly. American terms, I thought 1500 <laughs> was all. Okay, you started at 800 years ago. Yeah. 500 years ago, there was this horrible massacre where, in, in a nutshell, tell me what happened in this massacre. Well... This was the times when Sweden was in union with, with Norway and Denmark under a Danish king. So this and this was, was this voluntarily. Was, they yeah. were not occupying us. This is very important. Okay. We had signed an agreement okay, in 1397. So. so this was uh, according to that agreement. But a lot of people, and especially the noblemen, they were against this union. So when the Danish king came to Stockholm, well, what happened was that 
he invited everyone to a party, grand party, in the in the big castle. And uh, he said, I'll forgive all of you, you rebels. Come and join me. And then what happened was that after the party, they were all brought to Stortorget, the main square, and then all the entrances were locked down and they were beheaded. So all the Rockefellers and Kennedys and big big names in yeah. Swedish culture, yes. the Danish king decided just let's just kill them all. Well, it's a, the the story of, is of course a little bit more complicated <laughs> than that. It's not actually just you know the Danish evil people. Okay, but it it's, is it is nobility yeah. against royalty, I suppose. It's some of the noblemen. Yeah, there were other noblemen that wanted to be in a union, so that's okay. why it's uh, also on the square. You see the Nobel Museum. Exactly. And the Swedish Academy, which is the institution that selects who will receive the Nobel Prize in Literature every year. And that's a beautiful museum. It's a beautiful museum, and there you can know everything about Alfred Nobel, right. who is the reason why we celebrate this uh, He this made award. all of his money inventing uh, dynamite or something exactly, like dynamite. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. he, he wanted to have a more friendly legacy, I think, and exactly. have the Nobel Prize and so on. Yeah. Okay, from Store Target... We will walk over to the Royal Palace. Yes. And one of my favorite things about Stockholm is the pageantry, the Swedish pageantry, all the marching bands and the changing of the guard. And it's Mm. one of the great changing of the guards in all of Europe is right there. It's uh, one of the oldest. It's also started in the 1500s. Okay. So it's been going on there for every single day since the 1500s. And every single day they have a change of guards. And you have, I didn't realize it until recently, but you've got all these soldiers that are just really spirited, and I I learned, and tell me if this is correct, these are soldiers from the countryside of Sweden that are coming into Stockholm, and they want to do a good job because this is a big deal for them, just like it's a big deal for all the tourists that gather around to see them. Yes, it's a big big honor, and it's the different sections in the the Swedish military, they all contribute. So you will see that they wear different clothes every day, and there's a different procession every day. Sometimes there there are horses, sometimes there's a band. I just feel like a little kid when the horses and the the band is marching through the town every day up to the castle where they have the changing of the garden, and you'll be caught up in that when you're visiting. Also, when we think about the military of, of, of Sweden today, we don't think of Sweden as a military power. But in its day, it was a superpower, and it threatened much of Europe. And, and who was the great king? Gustavus Gustav Adolf, Gustavus Adolphus. Gustavus Adolphus. Yes, yes. Uh, wow. And then you can go to the armory right there in the royal palace. And I tell you, that is one of the great armories in all of Europe. Yes. They uh, say that they are the oldest museum in Sweden, but some even claim it's the, one of the oldest museums in the world. It was actually Gustavus Adolphus himself who donated some of his clothes and armory and said, this, the f- people in the future must see my Really? Uh, and you, and yes. you see that. So the, this was from the, the 1600s from the that six- this was decided, that all the, all the royal uh, clothes and, and yeah. armories should be kept for the future. So, so it's a museum from the 1600s. And that 1600s. was established by Gustavus Adolphus, but I remember just seeing all of the beautiful gowns and crowns and armor and everything, even armor for the horses, and yes. armor for the children and toys for the royal children. Yes, everything, everything you can think of in, in royal... Life and uh, and also the the horse that he was riding when he was shot. Exactly. That armor is there. Exactly. Oh, what a story! This is travel with Rick Steves. We're in Sweden right now, in the capital, Stockholm. We're talking with Osa Danielson about her great city. When you walk across the bridge from the old town, you see a lot of people fishing. Yes, that's true. Since the 1600s, right we have been a- able to fish in the middle of this big city. And you can get uh, salmon and you can all, all kinds of fish. I just it's, love that. It's just a proof that just how clean the waters are in Stockholm. And, that and you can actually not just fish, you can also eat the fish. And how people-oriented is. I mean, yes. you step across the bridge and you get to Kungstradgarten, right? Mm-hmm. And that was that literally the king's garden. garden. Yes, But now the king's garden is actually emphatically the people's garden. Yes, yes. It has been changing faces uh, many times through the centuries. But today, this is the, one of the main gathering points in, in Stockholm. This is where a lot of young people yeah, set I, up I, a meeting point. I feel like that's mm. a meeting place and you can kind of get the sense of what's happening with the young crowd exactly. in Stockholm. Osa, from the King's Square, it, it seems to me you can turn left and go over to Circlestorg and Drottningsgatten, where you've got all the shopping. Exactly, the commercial center, yes. And then across the street, the big department store. What's the name of the big department store? NK, which means NK in the Nordic Company. Nordic Company. Is yes. that, oh, that's what that means? That's what it means, yes. I thought it means no more kroner. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good, <laughs> good way to put it as well. 
that. But when you go in there, you can really get a, a sense of feeling the pulse of what's going on commercially in yes, Sweden. Yes, yes, you can. And you've got all kinds of you know, Swedish design, interior design, Swedish fashion. And Very if, you, nice. if, you, if you turn to the right and you walk along, you get over to the uh, Jur Garden. And this would be the, the Royal Hunting Grounds? Is that what yes. it was originally? Yes, you will walk along the shore among one of the most beautiful that and promenade. most exclusive uh, uh, streets in Stockholm, Strandvägen, the shore So these shore are very fancy avenue. condominiums for the wealthy people, I Exactly. Think. Famous and rich people live there, more than 20 rooms and, and, and a then flat. Was it just coincidence, or I saw all of these old um, boats moored along the Strandvägen? Yes, yes. Is it a place where people can put old boats? Yes, you can You can have your boat there, and there, there are a few people that live on their boats. And there's some there, beautiful so. historic boats. You cross the bridge, and then you've got the, the old hunting ground is a collection of great sites, some of the greatest museums. Yes. There's three great museums. Talk about these museums. Okay. The first uh, thing that we'll see when we cross the bridge is the Nordic Museum. And that's a museum dedicated to Swedish culture and tradition. And it lets you go all over the country, really, because if you're interested in Lap culture, there's even a Lap exhibit there. Exactly, the Samis. Oh, that's great. And then behind that, we have the number one museum in Stockholm, which is the Vasa Museum with the ship now, this is the, the greatest warship. warship of its day, right? Exactly. What year was it from, basically? How old is it? 1628. Okay. And on its maiden voyage? Yes. Crashed what into happened? the harbor? What happened? It, a, a, it sailed for approximately 20 minutes. This beautiful, fantastic, uh, decorated uh, warship that everyone was out there in the shores just looking at these so amazing things. why did it sink? Well, that's a thing that they've been studying for a long time. There's a combination of little uh, problems. Perfect perfect storm of little problems. Exactly. It was just a little bit too powerful and a little bit too narrow uh, to have so many cannons. It had 64 cannons. It had an extra row of cannons on the top, so it was a little bit top-heavy. Exactly. My hunch is... All the sailors ran to one side and waved goodbye to their loved ones. Oh, yeah, maybe that's a a factor as well. (laughs) But whatever the case is, 300 years ago or something, it sank to the harbor and just in the last generation brought up, preserved beautifully. 333 years, exactly, at the bottom of the sea. That is a unique sight in Europe. And the the thing is, it's so well preserved because of the special water in Stockholm, because it's so much Ah. fresh water that flows into the the seawater. So the, the little shipworm... Uh, that destroys all these old ships. They, they cannot live there. No, okay. Exactly. That's and why. Consequently, you've got this, like, if it's a coin, you'd call it uncirculated. You know, mm. it's just perfect. Yes. And the all the only carvings and everything. You have in the world. And then across the street and down a little bit, we got Skansen, which oh, is the Skansen. Open Air Folk Museum. Yes, it's one of my favorites. I love it because it, it, it is like a miniature Sweden. Inside you have original buildings from all over the country that have been moved Right stone there. by stone and uh, log by log. So it's not pretend, it's real buildings from seven centuries. And not just buildings, the furnishings. Exactly, and interiors people. and people dressed in authentic clothes and doing the tasks that correspond to what they're showing. So we have schools, Perfect. we have uh, manor houses, we have working class families and everything. You can literally be transported to the past of it, everyday it, life in Sweden. You know, I think it inspired a lot of other countries to make an open-air folk museum exactly. just like this. Because this and was then, the one, number one, and it's still the biggest one. So people come from all over yeah. the world to study how you can present everyday life in the past. That is great. That's called Skansen, S-K-A-N-S-E-N. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Osa Danielson. Our phone number is 877 and April is calling in from Roseville, California. April, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. Do you have a comment or a little insight on Stockholm that you can share? I visited Stockholm at least twice, and you've talked about so many places that uh, my husband and I have come to enjoy and um, appreciate. And I've also wanted to mention that if you had the time take a harbor or a ferry boat out to Vauxholm and explore the little parts away from the big city and enjoy the people on the ferry boat, especially in summertime when the shrimp are in season and everybody is eating them on the boat. Oh, that sounds like fun. That's a favorite, yeah. Oh, so tell us about eating shrimp and exploring the uh, archipelago. Stockholm has a famous archipelago. Oh, yes. The archipelago of Stockholm has approximately 30,000 islands and islets. So it's a paradise. It's a summer paradise. And these shrimp cruises, they're all about you pay an amount of money, and then you can go on these beautiful old 
uh, boats about uh, 100 years old and uh, steamboats. And then you and go eat out. shrimp? Uh, the sh- yes. <laughs> you can eat the as, and the shrimps are new. They're fresh. <laughs> and you can eat as much as you want. So, so it's, it's all beautiful. you can eat shrimp feast while you're looking at some of these beautiful islands. Yes. Is that, is that what you did, April? We didn't eat them. Uh, the shrimp are a little different than we're expecting from here in the States because they leave all the heads and the feet on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you have to peel them yourself. That's <laughs> how they taste the best. But it's but a little bit, it takes it's, a little bit of time. It's a fun time. Yes. And we, and it's, but of anything is to enjoy the people, to well, get out and, and talk with the people, whether you speak Swedish or not. People are so kind, and they want to know you as much as you want to know them. Well, that's great to hear. <laughs> and I think the language barrier in Sweden is about as small as anywhere, because I think nearly any young or educated Swedish person will speak some English. Even uh, the older generation. Everyone, everyone wants to speak English. Okay. They don't, they don't just do it. They want to do it. They, they so if you're a tourist, you can practice. expect that people are happy to talk to you. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. April, you know, you went out to Vaxholm, which is like the nearest uh, sort of town, I think, in the archipelago. There's three ways you can do your, your harbor exploration. You can take a tour boat in the actual town and visit all the different islands and go under the bridges, which is nice. You can go out to Vaxholm, which is like a, a short side trip to the nearest town in the islands. Or you can take a cruise all the way to the far through the archipelago with a ferry. And these ferries stop at every little town and hamlet and every park. And if you even have a, a house with a dock, I think you can raise your flag and the boat will, will stop there and toss exactly. your mail in or whatever. Yes. Osa, give us some tip about exploring the archipelago in general. Oh, there, there are many ways, as you say. There are so many islands and so many options. If you have some time, you can go on one of these boats and you can actually stay the night in one of those little beautiful fisher villages uh, out there. Uh, or you could take a day trip. There are islands literally starting up just at the outskirts of Stockholm and then basically all the way to Finland. So you can just decide how much time you want to spend. The further you get, the more exotic, the more barren it will become and, and, and the more the closer you get to the real archipelago culture. Yeah, and you, you say exotic. And, yeah. you know, it really does feel exotic when you get to the far end of the archipelago. Yeah, it's beautiful. April, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Thanks Thank you. for having me. Yeah, Thank you very now. much, April. Bye-bye. Bye. Your calls for Osa Danielson about Stockholm are coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. Or share your favorite things about Stockholm in our website message boards. You can post your travel tips in the radio section of ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Osa Danielson. She's a friend and tour guide from Stockholm in Sweden. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Richard's calling in from Lake Sherwood in California. Richard, thanks for your call. Good to get through to you. Uh, big fan of yours for many years. Thanks. Uh, my wife and I uh, plan to visit Stockholm, and we'd like to uh, get uh, your guest's opinion on the best things to do and see on a three-day visit in Stockholm, as well as the best time of the year to visit? That's a good question. Three mm. days in Stockholm, and what time of year would be best? Okay. Starting with the time of year, what we actually do say is that you don't know Sweden until you've seen Sweden every one of the four seasons, because oh. it really changes a lot. Our whole social life, the way we are, everything changes. So I would say that each time of year, you will see a different phase. Obviously, summer is beautiful. That's our favorite time of year. So I think for a uh, beginner, that would be my suggestion. Summer, which would be, you know, starting in May, June, July, and August. And for a three-day visit, I would definitely do the the main things, the main sites, which would be the Vasa that we have discussed right. already, uh, the Skansen Outdoor Museum, Folk Museum, and the uh, City Hall. The City Hall is beautiful. Yeah, this we, is we where... haven't talked about the City Hall yet. No, is a this striking is, building. This is the, probably the most famous building in Stockholm because this is where the Nobel Prize banquet is held every year, the 10th of December. And it's a beautiful building which kind of 
encompasses a Swedish culture and art in, in a very unique way. So it's a very, very beautiful way to see architecture. You know, there's a lot of pride. There's a lot of Swedish pride in the city hall yes. in Stockholm, just like there's a lot of Norwegian pride in the city hall in Oslo. Exactly. So yeah. it's a good way to get an introduction to to right. And you can Sweden climb the tower there for an incredible view oh, yeah, of the, the town. Oh, yeah, amazing view, yeah. amazing reward once you get yeah. to the top. So I would say, um, you know, Richard, uh, if you got three days, maybe one day in the archipelago and two days for all the great sites in Stockholm. I mean, Stockholm has so many just blockbuster sites. You could spend a whole day in that hunting garden, the Jur Garden, to see the open-air folk museum, the Nordic museum, and the, the old warship museum, the Vasa. You could spend a better part of another day at the uh, Royal Palace and the Cathedral and the Arsenal and, and browsing through the old town with its characteristic cobbled streets and uh, tour the city hall. The, the city hall tour is excellent. That's, yes, In fact, all, all over Scandinavia, the, the tours that you'll pick up at the sites are wonderful. And uh, this is uh, the land of the midnight sun country, or, or not quite, but, I mean, you got short days in the winter and long days in the summer. Yeah, never gets dark in uh, the summer. Yeah, so, so in the summer, uh, you got lots going on and, and uh, generally good weather. Thanks for your call, Richard. Thanks for the great tips. Yeah. Thank you. And Elaine's on the phone in Toronto, Ontario. Elaine, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. Um, so uh, me, my husband, and my then uh, four-year-old son... Just a couple of years ago, we went to Stockholm on a trip, including Copenhagen and uh, Iceland. We rented a home in Danderud, which is a suburb outside of Stockholm. Mm-hmm. We took the subway every single day uh, into the city center. And every single day, I think, we went to uh, Jurgen. And, you know, we visited Wisconsin and we went to the amusement park. And That's the big island we're talking about with all the great sites. Jurgarden yeah. is how I, I would mispronounce it. But uh, how, how? Jurgården. Jurgården. Yes, perfect. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Elaine, when you were taking the, the subway in, I was so impressed by the, just the subway system in Stockholm. It's pretty impressive. It's convenient and uh, the service was great and we never ended up renting a car. It was wonderful. Did you go to any of the markets? I was particularly impressed by some of the uh, the Hotorget market. Mm. Yes. Um, we went to the Salia Hall. Is that considered? Hall. Yeah, that's nice. Mm. Indoor mm. market. Yeah. yeah, this is where we can see all the typical Swedish delicacies are found yeah. there. It's a beautiful building as well. So what would be some of the typical Swedish things you would see in season? It's an explosion of color and beautiful yes. taste. Well, you have all kinds of uh, game meat mm-hmm. and you have... Uh, Mushrooms, chanterelles, and yeah, the chanterelles have, I remember are so beautiful. Uh, but what kind of game meat would you have? Uh, reindeer. You're going to eat reindeer? Yes, they're delicious. No. Yes, it's very good. It's delicious. And then all the berries, all the berries that you yeah. you can pick uh, yeah. everywhere you can find in these markets. So, all right. Yeah. Now you were traveling with your family. How was it for traveling with kids? It's the best thing. I, I recommend it to everyone. Like the free transit for kids under six. That's great. Here in Toronto, it's, uh, you know, after age two, you have to start paying. So I think hmm. it's, it's wonderful when you have family with young kids. Like every single day, we'd go over to that island and just pick a different thing to do for the day. So, yeah, we were there every single day. And we just take the subway back. And but it was where we had the most fun. Hey, Elaine, thanks for your call. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. And Linda emails us from Columbia, Maryland, and she writes, I see that the Vasa Museum will be closed briefly this year to build a new entrance. Uh, Can you please tell us about that? And then she also writes, I know that Sweden remained neutral and accepted thousands of Jewish refugees in World War II. What sites would you recommend for a visitor who wants to know more about the World War II and Holocaust experience in Stockholm? Osa, Mm. what about the Vasa Museum entrance? Yes, the Vasa Museum is, is to close during the springtime in order to open up for the high season so it can uh, receive even more people because there's a constant increase of, of yeah. visitors. In Every fact, year there's a new record. I can imagine there's a need for that. I, it has sort of a small entrance for what a great site it is. Yes. And then what about this uh, Swedish neutrality? It's interesting because you have a, a Nazi resistance museum in Oslo and you have a Nazi resistance museum in Copenhagen. Yes. But in Sweden, of course, you guys stayed neutral, so uh, you got off a little easier. Yeah. Did you uh, give refuge to Jewish uh, people during yes. Hitler time? A lot of Jewish people and a lot of people escaping from Norway and from Denmark. So many people from the resistance movement were in Sweden. Found refuge in Sweden. Exactly. They probably needed a refuge. Uh, Yes, definitely. What would a traveler look for in Stockholm to learn more about that? Well, first of all, we have um, in the center of of Stockholm, there's a beautiful synagogue. They have a memorial to the victims of the Holocaust and also a memorial to Raoul Wallenberg, 
who is um, oh, a yeah. uh, world-famous diplomat who, who was a, a diplomat in, in Hungary. He managed to save the lives of thousands and thousands of uh, and Jews. And he was Swedish. He was Swedish. He was there literally yeah, giving out uh, fake Swedish passports right. and, and literally saving people from the trains mm. to the concentration camps. And he disappeared after the, the Second uh, World War. So there's a mm. monument in his honor. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Stockholm with Osa Danielsson. Osa is a guide from Stockholm. Osa, I understand you designed an ABBA tour, but I'm also frustrated because they were going to make an ABBA museum. Mm-hmm. I mean, at that at one time, I think I was the biggest industry in Sweden, and the museum was uh, canceled. Tell us about the museum and tell us about what an ABBA tour would do in yes. Stockholm. Well, surprise, surprise, it's going to open this year. It is, the ABBA yes, Museum. The ABBA Museum is opening now, finally, finally. The exhibition has been going on tour right. all over the world, and now finally they are building a purpose-built uh, museum for Okay, so we can it. put that in our list of sites next time we go to Stockholm. Definitely, definitely. Nancy's on the line from Pacific Grove, California. Hi, Nancy. Hi. Do you have a comment or a question about Stockholm? Yeah, there's a couple I had. Um, one was, does the Viking ship, is that still a hostel in the bay of Stockholm? Oh, yeah, that's, that's not a Viking ship. It's a clipper ship. Yes. The Af Chapman. Af Chapman, yes. The clipper. A, a clipper ship, yeah. Clipper. I wouldn't want to sleep on a Viking ship, but I would sleep okay. on a clipper ship. And it's, okay. uh, <laughs> it's, it's permanently moored right there in the harbor, and it's one of the most uh, memorable youth hostels, I would say, in all of Europe. Yes, it's a legendary place. And it's actually not just a youth hostel. It's a hostel, and it's very popular among Swedes from the rest of the country that want to come into the capital, yeah. and, right. and they would prefer to stay there. So it's uh, actually for all ages. Is uh, it hard to get in a reservation? Yeah, you usually have to be uh, in advance, especially if you want to sleep on the boat, because there's another hostel right next to it, which well, it's the same hostel, but if you want to sleep on the boat, you should be, be sure to book book But you, you could, uh, the, the hostel on the, on the island, just across the dock from it, is probably more comfortable, and you can uh-huh. have your, you can go to the cafe on the deck of the off Chapman. Yes. But if you want to sleep on cool. the boat, you can do it. You just got to, it's understandably popular, so you'd yeah. want to make there it. There is a cafe on it you can go yeah. to. And a restaurant, What's yes. The name, great, great. the name of it again? Off Chapman. A-F-C-H-A-P-M-A-N. It's a beautiful yeah. ship. It decorates the harbor of Stockholm. And as, as Osa mentioned, it's a hostel, not a youth hostel, but a hostel. And in Scandinavia, they took the word youth out of the system, and, and people yeah. of any age can hostel. And, any boy, age. And, yes, and, definitely. Yeah, age only matters if you're a cheese. That's what they say. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And my calm. other question oh, yeah. was, what restaurant is one of the best in Old Town? In the Old Town. Mm. Well, there are plenty of restaurants in the old town, but one is uh, is uh, really special. It's one of the oldest restaurants in the world. It's from 1722. Really? What's the wow. name of that one? Gyllene Freden, the Golden Peace. The Golden Peace. Yes. The golden like peace. peace, like peace and war? Uh, exactly. Yeah, the exactly. Golden oh. Peace. So that Gyllene would be in, Freden. in yes. the old town. Yeah. There's a lot of great restaurants in the old town. You can walk around and, and just uh-huh. see what, uh, and you should, what appeals. You should choose one that has a basement, like this medieval basement. You yeah. go down to the vaults, and that really gives a special special atmosphere. So. Ooh, that sounds really exciting. Yes. Do they serve reindeer there? <laughs> they do, they do. They must. Yeah. <laughs> yes. They must. Mm. That's good. Thanks for okay. your call, Nancy. Yeah, thank you. Thank okay, you, bye-bye. Nancy. Also, we mentioned the ABBA Museum is going to be opening this year, yes. and you also have put together a walk. Uh, what would you see on the walk that relates to the to greatest our... musical group that yes. came out of Sweden? <laughs> we we actually go through the center of Stockholm, and we see the many of the main sites, but we do it with an ABBA perspective. We're going to see the places where they performed, where they lived, and all sorts of things that has to do with ABBA, and we do it to the tunes of ABBA. So we actually listen to the music while we're walking. So it's like a caravan of people singing and dancing, and, and people are looking at us and wondering what is going on. But it's just an ABBA tour. It sounds like a celebration of both Swedish life and uh, great music. Yes, it is. Osa Danielson, thank you so much for giving us a little peek into your beautiful city, the capital of Sweden, Stockholm. Thank you very much. When you visit the Nordic countries, there's one local tradition you just have to experience any time of year. Our favorite guide to opera and Italian cuisine, Fred Plotkin, joins us right now 
to share the pleasure of a proper sauna, the way he learned to experience it in Finland. When I was in Finland, my guide took me to the rooftop of a restaurant with a nice balcony overlooking the town, and below me on the roof just across the way, there was the top floor of a business, and it was filled with well-fed businessmen cooked like red lobsters in their sauna. And she said, every business provides a sauna. I realized later that at the National Finnish Opera House, there's two saunas that are kept fired up all the time for uh, musicians and patrons of the arts to enjoy a little soak. I'm joined by Fred Plotkin for an insight into the sauna of Finland. Fred, thanks for joining us. Thank you. When I was talking about that little introduction to the sauna, what was your response? Is it Finnish? Is it is it Swedish? Uh, why is it such a big deal? Well, it was born in Finland, and sauna to them is sacred, and I mean that very seriously. In ancient times, childbirth took place in the sauna because it was warm and it was hygienic. When people died, they were dressed for burial in the sauna. There is a, an expression in Finland, first build the sauna, then build the house, because the sauna is what is life-giving. People can often keep food in there. It is the place where everything is maintained through the cold winters, hmm. and it's the place where you clean yourself, and then after that you go for a dunk in the Baltic, hmm. in a swimming pool, in the shower, and assuming you don't have a heart condition, uh, that is the best thing to do. Anyone who goes to Helsinki should get a Helsinki card, which provides transport, but also admission to the Finnish sauna society where you can learn about the different types of sauna, five degrees of humidity, the cold soaks, the hot soaks, and then the piece de resistance, you can be scrubbed. Mm. You have not lived until you've had a kindly old Finnish woman scrub you like you're a little baby, and you feel so content after that you go right to sleep, the best sleep of your life. Now, Fred, co correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm trying to analyze the uh, economics of the sauna, and... My hunch is, in a less affluent time, there were more public saunas. And today, in an affluent age, when the tourist goes to Finland, the saunas that he or she will be able to uh, enjoy are either in the hotel or on the cruise ship coming in. But most people are wealthy enough to have a sauna in their home. Consequently, there's not so many corner saunas anymore. But if you go to a poorer or a working-class neighborhood in, in the suburbs away from the center, that's where you might find a traditional public sauna. There are a few left. Um, my favorite is Ironkatu, right in the middle of Helsinki from 1928. But there's another one called Kotiharju, which is a wood-fired sauna, the last one that's public in Helsinki. And this is where working-class people go because once upon a time, they did not necessarily have showers in their homes, so they went to clean themselves at the public sauna. There is no whiff of sexuality the way there is in lots of other countries with sauna. To the Finns, it's purely something about hygiene, about pleasure, about relaxation. Now, I took the bus out to Kotiharju uh, one afternoon, and it was quite a powerful, interesting experience for me. There wasn't any English there. It was definitely a working-class, functioning sauna filled with people who were there to, to do their soak and their relaxation. And I went in, and I remember being kind of awkward. I felt sort of like... Um, kind of like a naked Woody Allen without his glasses. And I was sitting on this concrete step surrounded by steam and, and knotty wood uh, paneling and rusty railings and naked fins. And everybody had long, stringy, blonde hair pasted to their face. And I remember looking out and thinking, wow, I have no idea what century I'm in, but it's definitely Finland. It was a fascinating, wonderful experience. It's genuine. And in a time when so many things are created as prepackaged experiences, when you find something genuine, you do everything you can not only to be a part of it, but do everything you can to save it. These are landmarks that are part of our culture, not just Finnish culture, but world culture. And then afterward, I decided, in the spirit of Fred Plotkin, to embrace the sensuousness of it all to get that rub down you talked about. And this woman who was wearing like a, a fisherman's plastic bib, she put me on her table. I felt like a salmon being gutted. She knew how to hold my slippery arm with all the suds and so on so she could pull me up and scrub me. Dirt was coming off me in Tootsie Rolls with her with her Brillo pad mitts. And she worked me over and I was, I couldn't, I can't explain how relaxed and clean I felt after that. That's the scrub down you're talking about? Yes, but also as Americans, we're taught to be in control of our situations. Everything we learn in school 
is about control, and this is about giving up all control and just being completely treated as as an object of love and affection and not having any means of giving it back. You just give in, and you feel blissful. There's no other way to say it. You know, that's a very interesting concept, giving up control. There I was. I mean, naked. Everybody was naked there. I'm laying on this big wooden picnic table, and this woman, who's just very strong and knows what she's doing, just works me over. And I just said, all right, here I go. Uh, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. When in Finland, let's go to the sauna. The Romans wouldn't do that, I assure you. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you go to Finland, you've got an experience waiting for you. We would recommend that particular sauna, I think. Koti Haryu. Koti Haryu. But also the Finnish Sauna Society, which is just outside of town and reachable on public transport, ah. is another one that maintains that tradition. I guess if you're going to do a sauna in Finland or Sweden, you would, you would go Finland? Yes. All right. Fred Plotkin, thank you so much. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Thanks for web help to Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern-Graham. Special thanks to the Radio Foundation in Manhattan for production help today. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can listen again to this week's show, search our radio archives by air date or by topics, and find out when different radio stations web stream Travel with Rick Steves. It's all in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through England, Scotland, through Scandinavia, the Baltics, and beyond, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of the best of Scotland, the best of England, and London. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.